Well, uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, this morning is a uh, special morning. We are uh, extraordinarily blessed to have bringing us the word this morning, uh, my good friend, Pastor Luke Wortgo down from uh, Carson Valley Bible Church. And he's been ministering there for about three years now, Luke? About three years. And uh, the work that God has done down there has been absolutely incredible to watch. Um, Luke uh, began pastoring that church by faith when it was about 10 people. And the Lord has grown it to, I think, upwards of 100 now, right? An amazing, amazing thing God has done. So we rejoice in, uh, in that. Luke is a godly man, a faithful man who loves God's word, who teaches it well. You will be uh, very blessed in his preaching. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, some of you have heard me talk about Luke. He is a man I very much admire, who has been a very great encouragement to me, who has uh, exhorted me at times when I've needed it, and who has been um, really a true brother and co-laborer in the Lord. And it's a blessing to serve Christ alongside him on different ends of, uh, of the valley here. But would you join me in welcoming Pastor Luke to the pulpit this morning? All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Well, as Dan mentioned, um, I do get the privilege of serving as a teaching pastor of Carson Valley Bible Church down in Minden. And uh, we have some wonderful, wonderful people down there. I know some of you guys are familiar with them. And we thank you uh, for all the ways that you have been praying for me and for us as a church um, over the years. Uh, those have been such a blessing. Uh, for, for me, and I know our church uh, thinks of you guys uh, very fondly, knowing the work that you guys are doing up here. And it's really a, a treat for me to be here, because as Dan mentioned, uh, we've, I've known Dan for a long time. And, and ever since he has been you know, serving and even serving in the role that he has now, we've been talking about our churches, right? We get together for encouragement, for prayer. And so I feel like I know you well, but... <laughs> I don't know you well. And so it is just a joy of mine, really, to be here this morning. Um, I'm so thankful that God loves this church, because he does. He loves you, and he is committed to you. Also, and Dan probably would hate that I would talk about this, the Reuben family is also very near and dear to me as well. Uh, in case you don't know, uh, Shelby was part of my very first community group that I ever started when I became a Christian at 19 years old. And so her and Dan have been stirring my affections for Christ for a long time. And so they are, just have a special place in my heart. And so I'm very thankful for them. And, and I know that you guys feel the same way about them. All right. Well, to my understanding, you guys have been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, but you've paused to go through the five, what are known as the five solos of the Reformation, correct? Right, so these five Latin phrases, right, that became these rallying cries of the Reformation during the 16th century. And as you have probably have been taught by Dan, and this is just my understanding, that these five solos, right, these five Latin phrases were never intended really to cause division in the church. Initially, they were, they were used to hopefully bring unity to the church, right? Bring clarity to what the Bible actually teaches, to what the gospel is. And so these five phrases were not meant to be divisive. But 
over the years is when they started been using and then also for the last 500 years, unfortunately, they have been uh, used to kind of see where do we land when it comes to our understanding of the gospel and the Bible. And so I think for many of you, you probably are not Roman Catholics today uh, because you agree with these five solas, these, these five um, right, summaries of, of how does one come to faith and then what is the purpose of saving faith in general? Well, what I would like to do is continue that series by honing in on sola fide, sola fide, by faith alone this morning. I believe that this sola attempts to answer the question, like really a lot of the solas do, is how can a person be made right with God? How does someone actually become a Christian? How do sinners, people like me, people like you, how in the world could they somehow be called a son or daughter of a holy God? How is that possible? Well, it's the gift of grace through faith, sola fide, through faith. And where is our faith? Our faith is in Christ alone, by grace alone to God's glory alone. And how do we know that? By Scripture alone. By Scripture alone. Now, sola fide, in case you are uh, you know, maybe a, a note taker or, or someone who likes to write down definitions, I just want to, let me put my cards on the table of what I believe sola fide means. Is sola fide is the biblical doctrine that salvation, another way of saying being made right with God, being redeemed by God, does not come by presenting some kind of justifying works, by presenting something to God, but rather by placing your faith in Him and Him alone. So it is through faith alone in Jesus that we are justified or declared righteous, right? These words that you guys have heard, I'm sure, many times before, but now we're, we're trying to put them all into this wonderful basket of solas. So we are Christians made right by God, adopted into his family by faith alone. Faith alone, believing and trusting in all of what he has done and not trusting on what we have done or even what we will do, but solely based on what he has done. Now, does that really matter to the rest of us, right? To the people who don't really maybe care about church history as much as, you know, we're, we're scared to admit. Or maybe, right, Latin phrases just kind of automatically makes us just kind of want to turn off our brains a little bit. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Don't, don't speak Latin. Don't really plan on speaking Latin. Well, how does this actually make a difference to you? And it's okay if you're there, by the way okay if you're like, I'm not quite sure if this is important for me. Because you know, I think we should ask questions about that. We ask questions like, hey, does this matter for me as a husband? Or does this matter to me as a, right, a father or a mother, right? a, a son or daughter, a grandparent maybe, a friend? Right? All of the different roles, relationships that we have. How does sola fide actually make a difference there? Well, I believe that sola fides, fide actually allows us to believe and trust in God 
rightly. And here's how that affects the relationship, because every single one of our earthly relationships flows out of what we love most. And Sola Fide, I think, provides clarity then to what do we love most? What do we love most? And I think when we understand God rightly, when we understand Sola Fide rightly, it allows us to love Him most. And then in turn, by consequence, we can actually love each other. We can actually be that father, that daughter, that mother, the wife, grandparent, in which we desire because we understand God rightly. And so we're not trying to get something from one another that can only be provided by God himself. So Sola Fide is going to teach us about God's goodness. It's going to teach us about his providence in our lives. Now, another name that you've probably have heard throughout the study is a man named Martin Luther. Does that name sound familiar to anybody? Right. Right. One of the pioneers, right, of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. Well, he speaks about sola fide a lot. And let me read a quick quote, just how important this was for him. He says, this article of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, is the head and cornerstone of the church which alone begets, nourishes, builds, and preserves and protects the church. Without it, the church of God cannot subsist but one hour. That's how important sola fide was to a guy named Martin Luther, who gave his whole life right to trying to, to teach people God's word, to teach him about what he has done. He says, sola fide allows the church to even exist. If we take it or don't understand it, then we're just... We're just meeting in a room, but there is no hope. So it's a big deal to Martin Luther. But does the Bible teach it? That's where we have to go, right? Does the Bible teach it? As you have been taught, sola scriptura, one of these five solas, is that scripture alone is our highest authority when it comes to these matters. Because although we care about what others say, right, we, even, we even care about you know, what the church has believed in the past. Ultimately, the scriptures still have our highest authority. We want to know, okay, that's nice. Those, those five phrases, those sound really nice. But does they reflect what the Bible teaches? Well, I believe it does. And God has given us his word so that we can know sola fide, so we can know him through sola fide. We can know his character. We can know his saving plan for people like you and I through it. So because we believe in sola scriptura, I think we have to turn to the word of God now. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, whether it's a physical or um, on your phone, will you open up to the book of Romans? The book of Romans. It's in the New Testament. And find your way to chapter 3. We're going to be picking it up in verse 21 to start our time. And really, the book of Romans through chapters 3, 4, and 5. I'm not going to read all of it. But we do want to spend a lot of time in this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Now, as you're finding your way there to Romans chapter 3, starting verse 21... Is it okay if I just pray one more time? Can I, I just want to pray for you and for your receiving of God's word. And I ask, as I do that, will you just pray silently for me in the preaching of God's word? And then we'll, we'll look at it together. Okay. 
But Father, I want to just take another moment to just come before your throne. Because Lord, we desperately need you. God, we need your spirit to allow us to rightly see who you are through your word. So God, I pray for every man, woman, child in this room that you would be able to, to quicken their hearts, to quicken their minds, to rightly see the glory that is you through your word. God, even allow, maybe for some that have never had a, wouldn't even say they're Christians this morning, that you would just allow them to have the scales removed from their eyes to be able to rightly see you and all that you have done out of your great love for them in the accomplishment through your son, Jesus. And Lord, we lift up all these things to you because we love you and we need you. So in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Romans chapter 3, starting verse 21. I just want to read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll, we'll circle back to a couple of specific verses. But the Apostle Paul says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And that is the word of the Lord. Well, church, in case you're not familiar with the book of Romans, but just knowing, right, your pastor, I know you've spent time in the book of Romans, probably even time in the book of Romans through this series. But the book of Romans serves the church as this, this wonderful letter of doctrinal robustness, where, where Paul, as he's writing to this church in Rome that was likely filled with many Jews, but probably Gentiles as well, is he's trying to teach this church what it means to be saved, what, how salvation comes, who's in need of salvation. So he's been spending the first three chapters explaining that every single one of us is in need of someone to redeem us of our sins. And so as Paul is teaching the church, and I believe because this is part of our our you know, canonized Holy Scripture. He's teaching us by extension that every single one of us is in need of salvation. Every single one of us has failed. Every single one of us hasn't lived up to God's perfect laws as Dan described earlier. 
Even the summary of the law, we didn't have to get very far to know that we needed somebody. We have failed. And Paul here is speaking especially to his Jewish audience who has had the law of God for their whole lives, been taught it, been brought up in it. And Paul is trying to teach them that, listen, the law of God is good. It reflects the character of God, but it was never meant to provide you a way to be made right with God. It can't serve that. In fact, if you look down at verse 20, Paul says specifically that knowledge of sin comes through the law. That's why we know that we need a Savior because of the law. So the primary purpose of the law was to bring that knowledge of sin. But also say, but is there someone who has fulfilled the law perfectly? Is there a way that we can be made right with God if it's not through the law? And this is where verse 21 comes in. Right? This is where the gospel starts to come into the conversation. For Paul instructs at the church that righteousness is available. You can be made right with God. You can be justified. You can be saved. And what does he say? What does he say in verse 22? And by the way, this is speculation, but I believe that Paul wrote this with a big smile on his face. Where he says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says, oh, there is a way. Through faith. The righteousness of God can somehow be given to you through faith. And Paul goes on to clarify exactly what he means by reminding them of how do we get this faith, this faith, right? How do we receive it? And then he, he, he gets so excited. In verse 24, he starts, starts really talking about the gospel and all of its nuances. He says, telling them that they've been justified, which is a legal term. A legal term of declaring someone righteous. That it's by his grace, right? That gift that God has given, right? The sola gratia that you were taught. That's through the redemption that it's in Christ who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by, how church? By faith. By faith. So Paul here, right, with the heavenly joy and that pinpoint accuracy is encouraging the saints that God has provided a way. That God has done something to take sinners like you and I and to be able to bring us into his fold, to be able to look at us and not just see the sin that rightly condemns us, but to see something far greater, something more akin to his son or a daughter. But how, why is that? Why is that? Well, that's, that's where propitiation comes in, that fancy word. Because God doesn't simply look at us as sons or daughters because he has forgotten about our sin. Right? He hasn't forgotten about what we have done, both in deed and with, even within our own thoughts, actions. Right? God didn't simply say, I'm going to justify you. I'm just going to wipe your slate clean because, just because. Right? That wouldn't be just. He doesn't just forget about them, but rather, 
He focuses his attention onto that propitiation of the son. That someone has paid the penalty. That the wages of sin, which are death, has been paid for. There has been a death that has taken place for sins. And this is from what we see from Paul is saying it was from the Trinitarian plan of God that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus, wanted to become that propitiation, that payment, that satisfied. He wanted to become that sinful representative that reflected you and I. But at the same point, when God was on the cross, he was not just there for his, our sins. He was also there so that he could give us his life. See, Williams like to refer to it as the imputation. So Paul talks about the imputation. So not only did he take on our sins, but then he gave us his life. He says, I have done it though. I have lived the perfect life. I have done what you couldn't through the law. And I don't know about you, church, but I, I, I haven't been able to get over that. Since the first time I heard it, truly heard it, I have not been able to get over the fact that when Jesus went to the cross, he was going there for my behalf. And not just because he had to, but he wanted to. But how does sola fide fit into that? How does sola fide then fit into that gospel, that good news of what Christ has done on our behalf? What well, comes in because how do we receive that? How do we actually embrace that reality of what Christ has done? Do, do we get it because we say, oh, thanks, Lord. And oh, by the way, I, I think I finally deserve that too. No. Paul is saying, no, you received it by through faith. That you've received it, right? That you are passive in that. That it was given to you by faith alone. By faith alone. And here's where maybe it's helpful if we pause and ask, what is saving faith? Like, how would we actually describe receiving faith? Because faith is a word that's not just used in church. You guys know that. Right? You, have, you could probably see faith all the time, right? We're coming into Advent season where faith will be all over the place, right? It'll be on front lawns. It'll be in songs. Right? You're often, we're often told to have faith. I remember one of my best friends in college, he went and got this giant tattoo on his leg that said, faith. But faith in what? Right? Oftentimes, it's, it's faith and faith. Or some would say, you know, faith got me through a hard time. Or faith gave me the motivation to be successful. But for the Christian, and I believe for us today, Fellowship Bible Church, is we want to actually say that we don't just have faith in faith, but we have faith alone in something. There's an object to our faith, and that object is a person, the person and work of Jesus. So sola fide is saving faith that's grounded in the work of Christ. Our faith is in him alone. Now, in general Reformed doctrine, one of the ways that that theologians over the years, they've tried to uh, give generalizations to, to 
what, what is faith? Like, is there any components that we could try to, to put into faith? Is there a way that we could understand faith in, instead of just a, a vague term? And, and so, in general, they would say saving faith consists of three parts. It consists of knowledge, assent or trust, or agreement rather, and then trust or rest. So there's knowledge, there's agreement, and then there's trust or rest. That's what I would say is saving faith. And it's why week in and week out, churches like mine, churches like here, right, where every single person that stands in this pulpit is trying to to tell, to, to give knowledge of what has God done? What do we see in Scripture, right? We're trying to give knowledge so you can understand who the God of the Bible is. That he's not just some this mysterious person that all of a sudden this thing just, just fell down out of heaven, but rather it was given to us so that we could have knowledge of who God is. But not just knowledge, but that we could have agreement, that we could believe, as we just read, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we have an agreement that when God says that sinners are in need of salvation, we would say, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And then lastly, that because of that knowledge, because of that agreement, then you trust or you rest in the finished work of Christ. Right? And that is the last component that really separates us from everything else. Right? If you read through the Gospels, you even see Jesus' interaction right, with, with fallen angels, with demons. And, and they even talk about that, how they have a knowledge of God and His plan. They would even agree that God is God and they are not. But do they have saving faith? No. Because they have not trusted and rested in who God is. You see, church, sola fide, I believe, then allows us to see the gospel clearly. See clearly, then, how are we made right with God? Why were the Protestant reformers, right, why were they making such a big deal of sola fide? Because they thought everything was getting muddied. It was getting cloudy of how someone is being made right with God. They're saying, no, we have to make a distinction. That one receives the gospel, one receives grace, one receives salvation by faith. Not based off them presenting their good works. Not by presenting that they are in some way deserving of it. See, Christians, right? And this is not a, not to be a, a put down, but we all, I think are bent, are bent towards legalism. Bent towards trying to do it our own way, right? I would go so far as to say that even in the garden, even in the garden, our first parents, Adam and Eve, there was legalism attached to their sin of not trusting God. Not because they were trying to earn God's righteousness, as we often understand legalism is, which, which that's part of it. But it goes to a role of we're trying to do it our own way. We think we know better. 
We think we can somehow make a case with God on why we should have this or why we should have that. But sola fide is trying to clarify it's through faith alone. It's always been through faith alone. It's why I think Paul, if, you, if we keep reading, which we will in just a second, why Paul says, I didn't come up with this. This is not just something that I decided to, to, to make up or just to say that salvation comes through faith alone. He says, I know this because I've seen it in my Bible. I've read this. And that's why if you, if you still have your Bibles open, look at chapter 4. Where does Paul go? He goes to Genesis. He goes to Abraham. It says in starting verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, Paul knew that his audience, right, his church, right, these Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians are just like us. We tend to look back at even the Old, Old Testament books and characters that we see like Abraham. And we tend to say, oh yeah, that Abraham did something here. Abraham achieved this through his life. Abraham was counted as righteous because of this, but we are something different. And we tend to do this with Old Testament books. We tend to moralize them. We, we tend to attach them away from Christ as if what Abraham needed was not the same thing that we all need. And here's where it gets really neat for me, church, is because in, back in, in Minden at Carson Valley Bible Church, I've been preaching through Genesis. And specifically over the last eight weeks, I've been looking at the life of Abraham. And I can tell you, if, you, if you're not familiar with the story, or introduced to Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham needed to be justified by God apart from works just as much as you and I. Abraham was a mess. He was a mess. Right? There's much more to Abraham than that he had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. Okay? He was a mess. He was a mess. The guy gave his wife away twice to pagan rulers and kings. He consistently lied, told half-truths, said, God, I know you said this, but I think I can do better. Remind you of anybody. It should. It's all of us. The same heart. The same need. See, rather, Ab Abraham, he was certainly a father in the faith. But he was a father of the faith because he was a trophy of God's grace. He was the ungodly person that was justified by God, as we see in verse 5. Even when God gave Abraham and gave God, Abraham these, these wonderful promises, right, of, of a land and of this family heritage that would lead to these nations, 
right? What's known as the Abrahamic covenant, this, these promises that God gave to Abraham. Even when he gave those to him, Abraham was not given those because he did anything. He was given those even before he understood God at all, before he even took one step of following God. He was given these. So Paul's asking the question then here. If we're just to take Abraham as a case example for us. Oh, sorry. Paul is asking the question then. Was Abraham saved by what he did? And we're just saved by faith? Or is it the same? And this is where in verse 3, when Paul asks the question, what does the scripture say? You see, there's a quote. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a direct quote from Genesis 15. Because Abraham had faith and believed in God and trusted God to do what he could never do for himself. Right? Abraham not only had knowledge of God, not only had agreement on God, but he was trusting God. Now, if we jump over chapter 4 to verse 18, we see Paul even explain this. Starting in verse 18, it says, In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which is as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. This is important, verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So we see all of those ingredients of saving faith, don't we? We see Abraham have knowledge of the promises of God that were given to him. There he agreed. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised and believed and trusted only God. Only God could take something that was dead and make it alive. He placed all of his trust into the person and work of God in that moment. And it's why God said, you are righteous because you have believed me. God did not just give Abraham a little bit of righteousness right, to get him on the right path, but the full and final righteousness or justification, a full and final justification that Abraham received. How? By faith. By faith. Protestant theologians call this justification forensic justification. Forensic justification, which means it was a declarative justification. It was announced. It was said, this is true. I am giving this to you. And this is why Paul was going back to Abraham. Because we like to read back into the story at times, oh, the reason why Abraham was called righteous in that moment is because he then lived a righteous life. But that's not what it says. It didn't say that he was called righteous because he believed and lived a life for God, but rather he believed God. 
He believed God. Not, not that I like or enjoy uh, picking on or, or trying to talk about maybe where doctrine has gone askew, but this is where I think our Roman Catholic friends have a misunderstanding of justification. Because they would not say that they believe in forensic justification. They would say that they believe in infused justification. That Abraham, he was not declared righteous. He was just given a shot of righteousness. Almost like a booster shot. And said, I hope this gets you to a place that then you become righteous. Saying this will kind of get you on your way. But you should have no confidence that it's done and over. Do you see the difference, though, between a declared righteous and an infused righteous? One just says, go do more. One says, believe me. Believe me. Rest in me. But is that what, if we're talking about that infused righteousness, what do we do with that? Right? What do we do when we see, maybe, maybe you have friends who are Roman Catholics, maybe you have friends that right, are trying to understand what the Bible says. Well, I think we go back to what Paul said. What does the scripture say? Allow. Church, you can have faith in the sufficiency of scripture that it answers the questions that you and your friends have. Maybe those who even aren't Christians. You can use God's word. You can have confidence in it. And you can go to it. And let me ensure you today that sola fide is not just the doctrine of the Protestant Reformation. It's the doctrine of the Bible. Paul specifically has been saying over and over again that you are saved by faith, justified by faith. But why is he making such a big deal about Abraham? Right? Why is he continuing to, to say, remember this, remember this, remember this? We'll look over at verse 23 of chapter 4. And here we see Paul's heart for the church, heart for the Christians of that day, and even Paul's heart for the Christians today, here. He says, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, that we too, by faith, we can believe and rest in Christ's finished work on the cross and his resurrection. That we are justified. We are declared something based off our faith in that in the same way that Abraham was. It's a final declaration, church. A final declaration. Not a hopeful, not just a booster shot. It's a final declaration. It's as final as the tomb was empty. But what do we do with that then? Right? Because that's just a lot of fancy, you know, theological knowledge, right? We can say, talk about justification, right? We can talk about righteousness or imputed, imputed righteousness. And those are good things. But how does it matter if we walk out of here and never, never have any smile across our face because of it? How do we end even right today's service? thinking about all the things that God has done on our behalf. Well, I think there's a couple options. 
There's a couple options for us today, church. One is maybe for some, it's to actually embrace sola fide. Maybe you grew up in church and you've been, and you've been wanting, wanting, sincerely wanting to have your life matter. But yet you fall into the trap of looking, constantly looking at what you do and saying, God, are you, are you happy? Have I done enough? Are you satisfied with me? Are you appeased with me yet? And, or maybe for, for others, it's, I've tried that. I've been trying to be good enough. I've been trying to do enough. I've been trying to, to do the things that maybe I've been taught or believed would be what it means to be a Christian, and you're just exhausted. You're exhausted. Sola fide allows you to have a pillow to rest your head on. That yes, does God call you to do things? Absolutely. But it's out of the assurance that he looks at you and says, you have been justified. I have declared you something. Now, go. Go and live and do. But do it out of the love that I have for you, not to earn it. Do it out of it. So for some, it's simply to embrace it for the first time. To see it be that pillow that you could finally get some rest on. For others who have, by God's grace, have embraced this reality, let's just keep walking in the joyous celebration that we have with Solopi Day. Constantly getting now to glorify Him and serve Him because of what He has done on our behalf. Assurance, church, assurance. That sola fide is not temporary. It's not given and then taken away. Assurance allows us to lock arms with each other and say, let's just keep following Christ. Let's keep loving him. Let's keep encouraging one another and keep talking about how it's all about Christ alone, that it's given to us by grace alone, that we know this through Scripture alone, that we get to then live our lives for the glory of God alone, not to earn anything, not to earn anything. Just to end our time, if you could jump down to verse five, or chapter 5 of Romans. Because good doctrine doesn't simply just stay in our heads, does it? Good doctrine moves its way from our head into our hearts. And when it gets there, something happens. This is where Paul goes. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope and glory of God. And may I stop there and just say, and all God's people said, Amen. This is joyous, church. Right? This puts that oomph in our step. Sola fide allows us to rejoice that all of these things have come.
Sola fide allows us to say sola Christus. By Christ alone, we have everything we could ever need. And we have simply been able to receive that by faith. What a joyous doctrine. I pray it encourages you for the days to come. Because there are days that will be hard. There will be days that you mess up. There will be days where you sin grievously against your God. And when those days do happen, though, you can remember that God knew about them. Knew about them long before you ever partook in them and still looked at you and declared you righteous because of what his son has done for you. That's all I got, Dan. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Will you guys just pray for me, and then I'll invite Dan up to close this out. Well, Father, I want to end just our time in your word by thanking you. That you are a God who justifies the ungodly. And praise be to God for that. Praise be to you that you have allowed us to sing the songs that we've sung today, to read the scripture that we have read, to rejoice in the hope that we have. And we've been able to do so because of the faith in which you have given us, the faith that we have received, the faith in which allows us to stand in the grace and the hope that we have in you the faith that allows us to glory in our God from this day here and forevermore. God, help us continue just to draw us closer to our understanding of what you have done on our behalf. And may we walk out of here loving you more than when we first walked in. Lord, we need you. We love you. And it's in your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.